Okay, good morning, Boker Tov to all. We are back. It's wonderful to be together to learn Parshas Pinchas. So many lessons and perspectives for today. Happy July 4th. Mazel Tov on our independence. Want to thank our uh, generous sponsors for the series for the year, Becky and Avi Katzen family, in memory of David Grossman. Our learning this morning should be Le'ili Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. Also, this morning's shir is dedicated Le'ili Nishmas, my great, great, great grandmother, Esther Malka Basrab Shlomo, whose 99th Yuritzite is today, her neshama. I didn't meet her, my great, great, great grandmother, but her neshama should have an aliyah as well. Parshas Pinchas is found in the Arts Girl Stone Chumash on page 876. Vaydaber Shema Moshe Lemor, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKoheni, Shibes Chumasim Yah Bnei Yisrael, Bekanoes Kenasi Besocham, Velochilisias Bnei Yisrael Bekenasi. Our Parsha picks up, not where last week's left off, our Parsha picks up to a certain degree in the middle of where last week was. This is an unusual break in Parshios, that there's not a natural transition between the stories, but the end of last week's Parsha was the middle of a story, and the story picks up in the beginning of this week's. Balaam's plot, Bilaam's plot last week failed. Balak had recruited Bilaam to curse the Jewish people. Every time he opened his mouth, a blessing came out instead of a curse, and so they pivot to another strategy. It's an age-old proven strategy to defeat not only the Jewish people, but any susceptible nation, which is defined as any that has men, which is to send promiscuous, licentious, provocative women to entice them, to lose their moral compass and moral code, and to give in. And the Jewish men are no different, and they do. And in fact, we have a horrific desecration of God's name, a horrific Chil Hashem taking place in a very public manner, until Pinchas rises, Pinchas with his kanos, with his zealotry, Pinchas responds and reacts, while everyone else is passively as a spectator standing still, Pinchas responds and reacts. We've spoken many times on this parsha, the story of Kitty Genovese. If you've ever had to call 911, 911 was invented after the story of Kitty Genovese. It's unclear exactly the details of the story that have changed over time, but a woman who was brutally beaten and ultimately murdered while countless people looked out their window, but each deferred and thought someone else would make a phone call, would take charge, would do something. And the result of that mentality of uh, being a spectator cost her her life. And here everyone is watching, everyone's looking, no one's doing anything until Pinchas. Pinchas rises. The end of last week's parsha. Vayar Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen Vayakam Vayikach Romach Biado He grabs a spear and he takes action. Vayavau Achar Ish Yisrael and he pierces the two right in the place of their union, in the process of their inappropriateness. He drives the spear through both of them, a shish kebab of sorts, and, uh, and takes a stand in defense and in the name of Hashem, and through that he stops this horrific plague. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. That was last week's parsha. Now this week's parsha, Hashem responds, Hashem reacts, First, he gives Pinchas' lineage again, in case you forgot from just a few psukim ago, Pinchas ben Alaza ben Aaron HaKohen. And now he awards him. Shalom. It's time to give him the covenant of peace. It's time to give him his bracha. And the bracha is he and those who descend from him, his progeny, will all be kohanim. Which is a funny bracha to give somebody whose father or grandfather is a kohen. He was not a kohen. 
the kuna was bestowed upon Aaron, but not those who were alive contemporaneously. It only continued naturally and genetically afterwards, and that's why Pinchas needed to earn it and have it on its own. But the question is, why does Hashem's pronouncements of Pinchas' reward begin a new parsha, Pasha's Pinchas? Why do we separate? Why do we divide the story at the end of last week's parsha? We separate out the storyline of the very act of zealotry, the act of zealousness, the act of standing up for Hashem, and then we have a break before we get to Hashem's response, His reaction, His reward. Why do we have this break? So the Tolna Rebbe is a mimer. The Tolna Rebbe was delivered on Parshas Bolak in uh, 2016. And the current Tolna Rebbe quotes his father-in-law, of Yaakov Yitzchak Weisblum, Zechat Tzadik L'Kadosh L'Vracha of Haifa, who had a close relationship of Rav Baruch of Vizhnitz, and he quoted that once the Kanaim of Yerushalayim, there are some extreme zealots who act with zealousness, were staging very extreme protests, and uh, not in a way that the Gedolim of the time approved. Normally they don't approve. Often the acts of the Kanaim are in fact against the Gedolim, so much for Das Torah. So if Baruch mentioned to the Tolna Rebbe's father-in-law this question, why does Parshish Balak end with the story? And yet we defer, we have a break, a significant break. It's only the next parsha that we get Hashem's response, Hashem's reaction, Hashem's reward. Rebaruch will explain that after Pinchas committed an act, his act of zealotry and killed one of the leaders of the tribes, HaKadosh Baruch waited an entire week to determine whether the zealousness was done sincerely and purely L'Shem Shemayim, or was it tainted, was it contaminated, was there some other motive involved? It's a cute vort. Because Hashem didn't wait a week. Just because we read the parsha a week later doesn't mean in the Torah there was a week between the act and his response. But the vort is a message that's powerful nonetheless, which is, we read Parsha's Balak last week. We'll wait a whole week to read Parsha's Pinchas to communicate that sometimes it takes a week to reflect, to look more carefully, to look more closely, to evaluate. Was this done L'Shem Shemayim? Was this done with pure intent, or was it somehow contaminated with other forces and other influences? Only after a week of inspection did Hashem grant Pinchas his reward. The lesson is sometimes an act of kinos can have personal interest, and a person has to check themselves very, very carefully. And that's why we see a stira, there's a contradiction. Pinchas is rewarded for his zealousness. Eliyahu, who we're told is the reincarnation of Pinchas, is in fact criticized for his zealousness. When are you rewarded and when are you criticized? When is it noble and when is it something ignoble? So it depends what is mixed in. Is it pure? Is it L'Shem Shemaim? Or is it contaminated with any other influence, with any other, uh, any other concept? And that's the uh, difference between a genuine zealot and those whose intentions are not purely L'Shem Shemaim can be found in the reward. The Tolna Rebbe, Shlita adds, you can see it in the reward. Why? Kodesh Baruch informed Moshe he was granting Pinchas brisi shalom. He gave him the covenant of peace. In reward for pure kanaos is the blessing of peace, which is a funny and peculiar reward. The man took a spear and drove it through two people, and he was given the Nobel Peace Prize. And for the kanaim of our generation, who present themselves as pure and sacred, but in truth are driven by passion, sometimes for wreaking havoc, and creating a corrupt and chaotic atmosphere or by a desire for honor, the worst punishment they could receive 
is brisi shalom. If you thrive off chaos, you know, you want a partial perspective for today. I was once meeting with a high-level uh, person in the issue of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I hate that word because it sounds like it's two-sided. The Israelis are not engaged in a conflict, only in self-defense. They always say, Golda Meir said, if, if, if uh, the Arabs would put down their guns, we'd have peace. If the Israelis, if the Jews would put down their guns, we wouldn't have any more Israel. So there's no conflict as if it's two-sided. But I was speaking to a high-level person who said that the truth is that the industry of think tank people and politicians are not really invested in a solution that's permanent because they'd be out of a job. The whole industry revolves around and livelihoods are based on the continuation of the conflict. So if you're a kanoi, if you're a zealot, you thrive and you in fact profit off of chaos. The system rewards poor behavior. So you see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Pinchas, what was the reward for his act? Brisi Shalom. If Pinchas in fact were driven by honor, if Pinchas would thrive off of chaos, off of zealousness, he wouldn't have been grateful for the reward of honor. That would have been the end of his career. That would have put him out of a job. Shalom, peace, harmony, tranquility. That's not me. I guess now I'm a nobody. But the fact that Pinchas was so grateful and so excited with the Brisi Shalom is itself the evidence that Pinchas was driven L'shem Shemayim, that he did it, in fact, for the right things. Congressman Richie Torres, who is a staunch advocate, stands up for Israel, spoke in our shul and was hosted for a uh, fundraiser in our community last year, a couple years ago. I was talking to him and he pointed out, this is an enormous challenge with politics today. People are rewarded for bad behavior and they're punished for good behavior. The more outrageous things you say, the more divisive things you say, the more confrontational and provocative things you say, the more followers you get in social media and the more money you raise. And the more you say, let's cross the aisle, let's work together, let's partner, let's find common ground, let's speak respectfully, nobody cares to follow you and nobody wants to give you a penny. So it's a challenge when you live in a world that rewards the wrong behavior and punishes the right behavior. So the fact that Pinchas embraced his reward of Brisi Shalom is evidence that he was in it for the right reasons because he wasn't interested in profiting from chaos and zealousness. He was interested in peace and in harmony. And you see a very powerful lesson, a very powerful lesson. Someone shared with me right before Shear the headline of the Sun Sentinel that we should all, if you subscribe, you should cancel. Major front page huge headline, Israelis go into camp and kill eight. That's like America goes into Afghanistan and murders after 9-11. Israel went in in order to take out terrorists who were planning horrific attacks against innocent men, women, and children. It's backwards and upside down. Chazal, our rabbis, taught us that if you're kind to the cruel, you will be cruel to the kind. If you're kind to the cruel, you'll be cruel to the kind. And sometimes the act of Pinchas, a proactive act of zealotry in order to eliminate threats, you're rewarded the Nobel Peace Prize because peace sometimes is only achieved through a display of strength, not a display of weakness. That's Baruch Hashem what Israel understands. That peace is achieved not by laying down your weapons and emboldening the enemy. Sometimes peace is only achieved through a show and a sign of strength. And that's in fact what we should be proud and what we should daven for the continued safety and security of our heroic soldiers who are putting their lives at risk and going in Baruch Hashem have been matzliach, have been successful and should only continue. And that is part of the lesson of Parshas Pinchas, 
of Parshas Pinchas is the act of Pinchas. Eliyahu later is criticized. Not every act of zealotry and zealousness is rewarded. When it's laced with personal interest and personal honor, then it's incredibly dangerous. If it's L'shem Shemayim, and it gets the stamp of approval of Hashem, then the zealot himself is grateful to be retired, is grateful to have the bris shalom, to be able to be out of a job, to be out of business. The Noam Elimelech, the Heligen Noam Elimelech, of Elimelech of Lezhinsk, asks a great question. Torah says, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron, HaKohen Yishivis Hamasi. Once again, we're given his lineage. Pinchas is the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron HaKohen. And he's the one who, through his act, got Hashem to quiet and withdraw his anger from the Jewish people. How? Bikano eskenasi b'socham. He zealously avenged my vengeance among them. Yesh l'haven, ma'ya inin b'izan shabizay osu so Rashi tells us, why are we given Pinchas' lineage yet again? Because his contemporaries, his peers, were mocking him. They were sarcastically ridiculing him. Mevazimoso, how? Harisan ben Putizeh. You see this person, his father was an idolater. His father is somebody who fattened the idols. Look at this person. So therefore the Torah comes and Yachaso achar Aaron says, yeah, yeah, on one side it's true he descends from idolaters. But do you know who his Zayda is on the other side? Do you know where he comes from? His Zayda is Aaron HaKohen. So one does the Noam Elimelech. So I don't understand. The cynics and the scoffers, the haters, you think they didn't know that his other Zayda was Aaron HaKohen? They knew that while they were still pointing to the Zayda who was an idolater. It didn't stop them. So when they're reminded that he also descends from Aaron HaKohen, now they're going to stop? Oh, oh, we didn't know. Oh, you're right. We shouldn't say a not nice thing about Pinchas. Of course, they knew it already. They weren't told anything new. How did it help? What was the point of highlighting and focusing that Pinchas descends, that in fact, he is the grandchild, the einikel of Aaron? Says the Noam Elimelech, Yeshnam Kama Ben Yodam Devashim is Damilem Eze in Chadash, Enam Yodam Lachlit Ech Trichan Lasos Bedavarzeh. Sometimes we go through life and we come to a crossroads and we have a decision we have to make and we're not sure exactly what the right thing is to do. Do this or don't do this. We have a dilemma that doesn't appear in the four Chalakim of Shulchan Arach. It's what we call a fifth Chalak. We're not sure doesn't explicitly appear what the right thing is to do. The Torah can't delineate every single circumstance that could arise in life. We have the overarching, do what's right and good in the eyes of Hashem. But sometimes you don't know, what am I meant to do in this moment? What does Hashem want me to do? What will give nachas ruach to the borei? What's the right thing? And we're sometimes tempted, and sometimes our judgment is clouded and it's distorted, and it's trying to lead us to the wrong conclusion. So we don't have the clarity, we don't have the confidence, we don't have the objectivity to know, is it the right thing or the wrong thing? But when a tzaddik comes, when someone trustworthy comes, when someone righteous and virtuous comes, and they do that act, and now we all can see the way they did it with sincerity, authenticity, so now we know how to resolve the dilemma. If they did it, 
that's the right conclusion. That's their posture, that's the perspective, that's the attitude, then that's the correct response. So they're all watching. Kazbi and Zimri are engaged in this incredibly licentious act in public. By the way, for many years of my life, we read Parshish Pinchas and we couldn't imagine. Who could be so bold? Who could be so brazen? Who could be so immodest to engage in such an activity in a public way? Sadly and tragically, we don't have to imagine. We're living in a time where it's not hard to picture people boldly and brazenly trying to prove that there's nothing to be ashamed of because we're living in the age of shamelessness. So people can engage and act in any way, in any public sense. So the people sitting and watching didn't know what do we do? Do we turn away and walk away? Cover our kids' eyes? Do we take a spear and drive it through them? How do we end this act, this, defi- this total chil Hashem? What do we do? They didn't know what to do. Shari Zimri Hayanasi Shevet Mi Yisrael. Zimri, after all, is not some Izvar from the street. Zimri is a Nasi, he's the prince of the Jewish people. You're talking about one of the leaders, one of the role models, one of the board members who's now acting in this way. And they all forgot the law that when a person is acting then it demands a strong, a strong response. So Pinchas came and he revealed what is the proper halacha. Now they knew this was the right thing to do. But at first they didn't know. So where did this kanas come from? Why did Pinchas react this way? Was this a noble and righteous? We just talked about the two types of kanas. You can be a zealot with pure intent for the right reason, or you can be a zealot because you thrive on chaos. You're an extremist who loves extreme behavior. So they were watching and didn't know what was driving Pinchas's act. And at first they said, you know, Pinchas descends from an idolater. I bet his behavior is in fact informed by these foreign values and influences. They didn't know. And that's what the Torah comes to tell us. No, it's not Avi Imo, who is pote pitem agalam la It's not that this attribute or this act was the result of the influence of his maternal grandfather, who did expose him to values that are not our own, but rather, yachasu achar aron. How did Pinchas know this was the right thing to do? Where did Pinchas get the courage, the conviction, the tenacity to rise and do something no one else did? Not because of his maternal Zayda, his paternal Zayda. Because of Aaron HaKohen. Because he descends from Aaron HaKohen. And that's what gave him, that's what gave him this, this, uh, that's what gave him this strength. So you see that Kano's zealousness, zealotry, is a double-edged sword, pun intended, I guess. Zealotry is complicated, and a person has to be confident it's L'Shem Shamayim for the right reasons, and don't try it at home, and don't try to be Pinchas, because it most often fails. But the Torah, in fact, is testifying that Pinchas did it for the right reasons. And how does the Torah give that testimony? How does the Torah affirm that Pinchas did it for the right reasons? By connecting him to... That's number one. Number two, listen to this beautiful insight. When a person is trying to be an Eved Hashem, when you're trying to, how far can I push myself? How can my davening, 
How high can my davani be? How much learning can I do? How willing am I to push myself out of my comfort zone and do chesed? So when we're operating only within our own boundaries, expectations, imagination, then we'll only push ourselves as far as our imagination goes. However, but when you see among somebody else, you say, wow, you learn what? How much? You remember it how well? Wow, your davening is so sincere, so pure, so connected. Wow, you do so much chesed, you're giving so much staka. Now you see somebody else who raises the bar even higher. And now you have a proper kind of envy and jealousy. Not because you don't want them to do it, but you want to do it just like they do. And that's what it means. Pinchas implanted kina b'socham among the Jewish people. You listening to this word? It's a gewaldige word. Pinchas, because, you know, they say, I'm, I'm not a runner, so I'm not going to remember the details. You'll forgive me. But they couldn't break the barrier of a certain minute mile for many years, for history, the four-minute mile. They couldn't break the four-minute mile forever. Nobody could run a mile in under four minutes. Nobody. Not professionals, not amateurs, not Olympians. Nobody could break the four-minute mile. They thought it was impossible. It couldn't be done until... Who did it? Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister? Roger Bannister. <laughs> Confidence. Until Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And what do they say? It was like a couple months before everybody was breaking the four-minute mile. So how does that work? Nobody could do it. Everyone tried. Everyone failed. And as soon as one person did it, now it was no longer impossible. It was no longer a barrier. Now everybody could do it until the line moved. I don't know what the lowest minute mile is now. So that's what the Noam Alimelech is saying. Noam Alimelech is saying, everyone sat around and they said, we don't know what to do in this circumstance. None of us have the courage. None of us have the conviction. None of us know what to do. Pinchas rose and he did the right thing. And by doing that, what did he do? He created, he broke the four-minute mile, the four-minute spiritual mile. And now the rest of Kenasi, he implanted jealousy and envy and competitiveness. And now they said, you know, if he could do it, we could do it. If he could fight for Hashem, we could fight for Hashem. If he could be so aspirational in his relationship as an Eved Hashem, we too can be. So Bekano is Kenasi, not from the Lushan Kina of zealousness, from the Lushan of Kina of jealousy and envy. He implanted a healthy and a positive competitiveness and envy in us. Bisocham, Velochilisias Bene Israel Bekinasi. And therefore, Kilisi Milashan Sof Vichilyon. Ratzaloma Ayideh Shiro came by Pinchas. You af Bene Israel, Yechonless Alice Lamaila Maila Adblis Sof Vichla. So now there's no kilyon, now there's no destruction, there's no boundaries, there's no barriers. Because Pinchas instilled a healthy competitiveness, Hashem says, I'm giving him the reward of shalom. And that's what the Gemara in Baba Basra tells us, I thought, I thought you're not supposed to be jealous and envious. All the Musas Farim tell us, you have to break that sense of jealousy and envy in you. And the answer is, you do. But you have to define what's jealousy and what's envy. 
If you're jealous and envious of something someone else has because you think you deserve it instead of them, I should have that car, I should have that spouse, I should have that job, I should have that position of honor, not them. That's an unhealthy, self-destructive jealousy. But if you see someone else and it motivates you and it inspires you and it drives you, can asofrim, tar Competition among scholars creates wisdom, creates wisdom. So healthy competition is good, which is why a couple of weeks ago, Parshas Baaloscha, when Aaron Akoin, after the Parshas Nesim at the end of Naso, he says, it's not fair to me. How come they all get to bring Karbonos and I don't? It's not fair to me. And Hashem doesn't give him a shtick of patch and say, you get what you get and you don't get upset. What does Hashem do? He says, not fair to you. You also want a piece? No problem, Aaron. You get to light the menorah. Why does he reward him for that jealousy? What seems like childish jealousy. He rewards him. The answer is Hashem loves healthy competitiveness. I love that Hashem loves healthy competitiveness. Hashem loves healthy. Unhealthy competitiveness, where you have no self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth, unless you can compete, where you're jealous and envy and define your identity and your happiness based on others. All that's unhealthy. But a healthy competitiveness that drives you, that creates ambition for growth, it's beautiful. And that's why Hashem rewards it in our own. And it's why Hashem rewards it here now in Pinchas, Pinchas, you introduced to Klal Yisrael, you broke the four-minute mile. And now you set a new bar, and they're all competing with you. Here is the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow, what a beautiful, what a gewaldic thing that you've done. What an incredible thing. So Pinchas is rewarded, and we have a new attitude towards Midian. You have to strike the Midianim, and uh, harass them, and smite them, because they conspired against us in the matter of Pa'or, and they took us down. Then we have a new census. I'm sorry. First paragraph, Why do we have to strike the Midianim? We have to go confront them, and we have to go have a conflict with them. Why? Because they harassed us, they conspired against us in the matter of Pa'or, the matter of Kazbi, the daughter of the leader of Midian, which just tells you also, by the way, how corrupt a nation when the leader sends his daughter to act promiscuously and provocatively. He uses his daughter and treats her like, I won't even say, in order to defeat an enemy. What kind of a nation? What kind of a leader does that to his own child? does that to his own daughter who was slain on the day of the plague in the matter, uh, in the matter of, of Pror. Kitsorurim heim. So again, Noam Alimach, third Noam Alimach of the day. The Helig of Noam Alimach. Some here were on our Poland trip. We had a tish, we fabranged at the, uh, outside the kever of the Noam Alimach in Lezhinsk together. I'll never forget. Translate the word sororim. Go confront them. Go take them down. Why? Kitsorurim heim. What does the word so remain? They are Tsorim. Let me put it differently. What tense? What tense is Tsorim? Past, present, or future? Present. One does the normal Melech, Yesh Love and Masha Omar Tsorim Balashon Hove, Lechorahavalamar, Tsoruru Haim Lachem Balashon Avar. 
what, what Midian did to you is over. It's in the past. Pinchas ended it. The plague ended. So why does Hashem say, you need to go confront Midian because of what they're doing to you in the present tense? It's what they did to you. Tzoruru, not Tzorurim. And what are they doing now? Pasuk says, How? What is the word? They harassed you how? means by conspiring through their strategy, through their plans, through their machshava. What do you mean? Go stop them for what they're doing right now still in the present tense. And why do you need to stop them? Because they conspired. Because they conspired. You know, the reason to avenge the Nazis is not because they had a final solution, but it's because what they carried out of the final solution. Here, Midian caused a plague through sending Kazbi and got us to worship Baal Peor in an incredibly undignified way. And that's why we have to stop them. Why benich lehem? What they did that was so egregious is that they had a strategy, is because they conspired. That's what they did that was so bad that we have to avenge, that we have to take them on. So says the normally Melech, The truth is Midian tried to come at us in three different ways, Midian came at us in thought, in speech, in action. The action we know, that's what the Torah testifies. That's what the narrative tells us. They came at us with the story of Kazbi. They came at us with the story of Baal but people also who didn't worship poor, but they spoke about it. They spoke in a way that's not proper. They spoke on topics that are improper. They spoke with profanity that's improper. And even those who didn't engage in the speech heard those talking about it, and it caused them to think about it. And the Vort says the normal Melech here is that every time that we do or we see an Avera, it creates within us a residual effect, a residual impact. We have the image of the Avera seared into our mind. We now know that that Avera is a real possibility. We now know that it's a real possibility and it's seared into our mind. So even if we, certainly if we engage in a behavior, the nostalgia, the good feeling, the pleasure, even if we have regret and remorse, but we're still holding on to a little bit of the geschmack that we got from the Avera. And if we didn't do the Avera, but we watched, we witnessed, we observed someone else, so now that image is seared into our mind. We remember, we review, maybe we're tempted, maybe we're driven because we want it. 
וגם כאן, כל זמן שהמדיונים נצאו בעולם, נפלו בלב ישראל מחשב עזרוס, והרהו רעי אבירוס דה פאור, as long as מדיון continued to exist, as long as מדיון continued their practices, we continued to remember our encounter, our connection, our engagement with them. ויעזה היה עיקר הנקומה במדיון, רק מחמס המחשב עזרוס שנפלו בני ישראל. So, the fact that they attacked us, the fact that they seduced us, the fact that they enticed us towards idolatry, Hashem took care of that. We could move on. Why did we need to continue to engage them? Why did we need to avenge them? Because of the machshava. Because until we purge them from our mind, we needed to, we needed to still engage them. So we see from here that when a person begins to do tshuva, if you want to return, repair, recover from something wrong that you did, the first thing you need to do is purge this residual impact image in your mind. And HaKadosh Baruch is telling us, what's the method? How do you do it? You need to, you need to do something against Midian because they're still in your head. They're still in your thoughts. They're not part of the past. It's not Tzoruru, it's Tzorurim. So you need to do something to purge them and get them out of your head. And in what way are they still in your head? How are they still conspiring? Because they're still they're still in your head. And as long as they're in your head, they've got you. So it's true. You're no longer engaged in actions with them. They're no longer seducing you physically to do the wrong thing. But Kozman, that you're connected with them, you're thinking of them, you're imagining them, you're fantasizing about them, as long as they're taking up real estate in your head, Tzorurim, in the present tense, they are continuing to get you. How? Because they own you, because they're in your mind. You need to You need to do something to push them away. So the Maisa is over. And the Dibor, you're not speaking about them. But the Machshava, get them out of your head, you need to now get them out of your head. You have to find a way to put them down. You have to find a way to purge them from your mind. You have to find a way to stop perseverating over them. You have to find a way to stop thinking about them. Because as long as you're thinking about them and they own you, you continue to be corrupted and compromised by them. And now you can understand, says the normally Melech, that's why it's Tzorurim, not Tzoruru, because they continue to be working in your head. And that's why it's B'nich Lehem. The most egregious thing that they did in the end of the day is not just the action and the dibur, but the machshava. It's the fact that they're still in your mind. This also answers back in Parsha's Naso. You get a bonus, not just this Parsha perspective for today, but we keep going backwards too. Parsha's Naso. Everybody knows, why do we have, why do we have Parsha's Soter? Lamanis macha Parsha's Soter, le Parsha's Nazir. Why do we have the story of the Nazir, the law of the Nazir coming right after the story of the Sota, the wayward woman who was disloyal to her husband? to teach us that a person who's roa sota bekilkula, yazir atzmo minayayin. If you see a sota and you see what happened to a sota, yazir atzmo minayayin. Then you say, whoa, somebody who was intoxicated, somebody who drank too much, ended up crossing a line in a boundary, secluded with a man, practiced infidelity, and look what happened to her. I'm staying away from wine, I'm becoming a nazir. And the commentaries ask, wait one second. Why do you have to go so far to become a Nazir? If you saw Sota Bikhil Kula, what does that mean? It means you saw the whole thing. 
What happened? The husband warned her, don't seclude yourself. Two witnesses testify, she secluded herself. We don't know what happened in that room where she says nothing happened. They were just playing mahjong. But we're suspicious because she was already warned and she defied the warning and secluded herself nonetheless. So how are we going to establish the truth? She's brought to the Beis Amikdash where her hair is uncovered, she's disheveled, she's embarrassed. We're doing everything we can to get her to admit. Why do we want her to admit? We want her to avoid drinking the water. We don't want her to die and we don't want to erase God's name in vain. But why does Hashem allow His name to be erased in the story of the Sota? Because the only way, this is a beautiful insight, the whole story of the Mesota is not to find her guilty. The whole story of the Mesota is to be able to prove her innocence to the point that her husband will ever trust her again. Because if she says nothing happened and he wants to believe her, he can't help but always be suspicious the rest of his life. But because Hashem is willing to let his name get erased in one of the ingredients of the sota, and when she drinks it, if she's innocent, he'll know about her innocence, he can with a full heart move on. So it's not a way of indicting, it's a way of exonerating. And that's why Hashem goes that far. But if indeed she's guilty, what happens? She dies. How does she die? A peaceful death in her sleep? No. Her belly fills with air until ultimately she explodes. That's what we're told. We take her outside, move away from her. We don't want her to contaminate, be matame, anything. When the body parts go flying, it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty horrific. It's pretty terrible. It's my son's favorite part so far of Mishnaya Sota that we're learning together. Now, before you react, all the women get all upset. So she dies this horrible death. What about the man that she cheated with? You should know he dies too. Wherever he is, when she drinks, he dies too. He violated Aisha's Ish. He crossed a boundary by sleeping with a married woman. He dies the same horrific death wherever he is. And that's what's, in, what's interesting is, it's wherever he is. He's on the couch watching football with his friends and all of a sudden, because <laughs> she was busy in the base of Mikdash dealing with the accusation. The Sar Shalom of Bells, the Bells of the Rebbe says, you know what you see from here? You see that someone can drink something over here and it impacts someone over there. And that's why when we make a l'chaim, we drink a l'chaim. We say, a l'chaim, the person should have a refuah L'chaim, the, the neshama should have an aliyah. L'chaim for the simcha that's being celebrated all the way over there. My l'chaim over here could have an impact over there. He says, look at the Mishnah and Sota. If she can drink and he dies all the way over there, if that's true for mother, if it's true for death, then it's true l'chaim. You could drink a l'chaim over here and then somebody will have the benefit over there. A beautiful thought, a beautiful kavana next time if you enjoy a nice l'chaim. The bottom line is she dies a horrible death. So kolarota sota bekulkula, who needs like reality TV? If you're following the sota and you come to the Beis HaMikdash and there's a whole audience waiting, what's going to be? They don't break the commercial. They don't say tune in next week. Right then, she's going to drink the mesota and you're going to find out what's going to be. And what happens? She explodes, she dies. So what's everyone watching, witnessing, going to say to themselves, whoa, I am never doing that. I don't ever want to be in this position. I'm not even talking to the opposite gender. I'm not getting secluded with the opposite gender. I'm done. Why do they have to go to such an extreme to be yazir asma minayayin? Simply seeing what happens to her should be much more than enough to get you to not want to come close. Why do you have to go to this extreme?
Come back to the Nomali Melech and our Parsha that we just learned. Because how did Midian work? By getting into our head. It's not just about the act. It's about the image that is engraved in our mind that continues to haunt us and tempt us and seduce us. So if you see a sota, you know what you saw? Until now you said, I can't imagine anybody would actually have an affair. I can't imagine anyone could cross that line. This is not breaking the four minute barrier for the good. This is breaking a different boundary for the bad. Nobody I know, nobody in my world, nobody I can imagine, nobody in Klal Yisrael, nobody could ever do that. And now you saw somebody did that. Say, so I guess it is a possibility. I guess it does happen. I guess it's real. I guess it's not only hypothetical. Now you're in trouble. So therefore you have to do something to erase the image. Yazir atzmo minayayin. Tzroros hamidyanim kitzoririmheim. Not tzoriru, but tzoririm. If they're still in your head, you're in trouble. Do something in order to purge them from your head, from your imagination. Okay, moving right along. The new census, because we love censuses in the Jewish people. Perach Avav, top of page 870. Lift the heads of the Jewish people from 20 years old and up and uh, count them. Counting is lifting. When you make someone feel counted, when you lift their spirits, when you lift them, when you make them feel counted, you lift them up, and we go through the whole count. Perachavav pasuk nunvav, all the way to page 884, don't get whiplash. the kahas, and so on. How are they counted? How is the land divided? So I'll go back to pasuk nun gimel. Why was the census taken now? Because they were poised and positioned to go into the land. And how is the land of Israel distributed? How is it divided? What tribe gets which section? Alpi Goral. Pasuk Nunvav. Alpi HaGoral Techalek Nachalasau Bein Rav Lema'at. According to the lot, according to the, according to the, uh, how do you say Goral? The lottery, thank you. According to the lottery shall one inheritance be divided between the numerous and the few. So, is a lottery, is relying on a goral a good thing or a bad thing? So here we turn to our first Otsar Plos HaTorah of the day. Incredible Sefer. Oh. Unbelievable Sefer. So he deals with the following. So we know the Gemara tells us, Shabbos Daf Kuf Nun Vav, and the Shulchan Aruch quotes it, Lahalacha, Yorodei Simen Kuf Ayin Tes. How do you know you're not supposed to ask a goral? We don't rely on gorals. Shunemar Tamim Tiyem Hashem Lokecha. Because we have a pasuk in Sefer Dvarim, Tamim Tiyem Hashem Lokecha. We walk purely with Hashem. We don't believe in superstition. We don't believe in horoscopes. We don't believe in silly girls. We don't believe in it. The girl, the chose bekochavim chadam milsi. Zak the Gemara, a girl and a chose bekochavim, astrology and a girl, a lottery, silliness. You don't flip through the book and the pages, and you know it will tell me what I meant to do. That's believing in something other than Hashem. It's kishuf. That's something, it's sorcery, it's a superstition, it's following and believing something other than Hashem. Udvarav huvu betosvos. And Tosvos quotes this, and the Shachanach quotes it, Allah lamaisa. So on the one hand, says the Otoplaza Torah, we have a drasha, tamam tiyem Hashem lakacha. You have to follow Hashem and don't believe in anything else. I was in Tennessee last week, and lottery winners are not usually from Boca Raton, they're from places like Tennessee, so I thought, let me buy a Mega Millions ticket. <laughs> So I went into the, I'm trying to finish this campus. And I thought, I said Hashem. 
This is it. We're done. Just make it easy. So I went into the gas station to buy a ticket. I said, do you sell the Melga Millions Powerball tickets here? So the woman buying the cash just says, no. The owner of the gas station is very religious. I said, so am I. Why don't you sell, why don't you sell lottery tickets? She said, well, he's very religious and lottery's gambling. So they don't sell here. So I went next door and bought a Powerball <laughs> ticket. And let's put it this way, our campaign for the campus continues. So it tells you how successful I was. So who was right? Maybe the gas station owner's right and I'm wrong. Tamim tiyem Hashem lakacha, what are you doing? Maybe we shouldn't gamble, buy lottery tickets. Maybe you don't you know, flip through the book or spin the thing or determine your destiny because of a lottery, because of a goral. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? Which is it? Because you see, Torah and Parshas Achremos, how did the Kohen determine which goat was for God and which one was going to be pushed off a cliff? It was done through a lottery. Here, our Pasuk, the land is divided how? Through a goral. In the Beis HaMikdash, how did the Kohanim distribute the jobs each day? Who got to do what? They stuck out the finger, they counted, they went around. So, is it us or is it mutter? Which is it? So the Sefer Stechemed quotes that that which it says, We don't engage horoscopes and superstition to try to predict the future. That's when it's usher. That's when it's usher. But in order to decide what to do, then it's allowed. So which goat is for Hashem, which one? To randomly choose, it's all from Hashem. Apiyah goral, to distribute the land. Apiyah goral, to distribute the job of the Kohanim. Apiyah goral, because that's not trying to predict or anticipate a future that is in the present. Then, only the Otzer Plos HaTorah would do. Many, many pages, a long essay on examples of when we use a goral. I'll just briefly, because I still want to get through more, give you some of his examples. The mitzvah of Yibam. If a man dies and he has no children, his brothers are obligated to marry the wife, lever at marriage, in order to continue the name. Let's say he has more than one surviving brother. Which one does Yibam? So the Cheshek Shlomo says, it's on the Achagadol, the oldest brother. But you have two twins. So the one who died had twin brothers. One is older, but let's say you don't know. The Achagadol, Im Shneim Rotzom Liabim, both of them want to do. Who goes first? So, Cheshek Shlomo says, you do a goral, you do a lottery to decide which one. The Magen Avram writes, quotes many poskim. Listen carefully. Magen Avram says, Kuf Lamed Vavelim. You have people in their year of mourning and somebody who has a yurtzite. And who gets Kaddish? Who gets to lead the Amad? Says the Magen Avram, Ini, mini, mini, mo. Stick out your fingers. Goral, maybe the Gabayim in the handbook, we now need to put some Goral. So a Goral to determine, says the Magen Avram. The Minag in Varmaja. When the Lulavim and Esrogim arrived for Sukkot, who gets the best Lulav and Esrog? They did it through a Goral. Maftir, the Minchas Eluzer, the Munkacher. A Bar Mitzvah and a Bal Yuritzite. Who gets the Maftir? Zuk the Munkacher. Nistapakti Lamaisa Shanishatik Shir Bashabas Echabes Amedrish. Yish Bal Yuritzite, Bobayom. Ubal Mitzvah Shanasa Bar Mitzvah, Gam Kein Ben Bayom. So the Yuritzite was that day, and a Bar Mitzvah boy was Bobayom, his Bar Mitzvah. Ushneim wrote some Maftir, and they both want Maftir. Vidan Sham Barichas Mikodem. 
So the Minchas Eliezer there's a big discussion who goes first. Horesi shebal yirtzai bosayim kodem. Achmem dey darche shalom nasa goral. Really, the bal yirtzai goes first, but they're gonna pelt him with their esrogim if they take away the bar mitzvah boys. You know, today a bar mitzvah boy still gets the rest of the parsha. He leads Musaf. He has a logo designed and a new yarmulke he's wearing. He gets a trust fund with his rabbans. He has all technology gifts. He could live without the maftir. But in those days, the minchas eluzer, the whole bar mitzvah was maftir and a piece of kichel. That was the whole bar mitzvah. So he says, true that the yurtzai comes first, but that's the kid's whole bar mitzvah. You're going to scar him for life. He's going to grow up and write a book. So therefore, what do you do? Nasa goral. You make a goral. You make a goral. And he says we find many more in the poskim where when there was a dilemma, what to do, the solution was a goral. Like the pasuk here in our parsha, api goral, api goral. So is a goral telling you what the truth is? Is the goral just telling you what to do? It's like flipping a coin because you don't know what to do, so it's a good solution. What is the role of a goral? What if a goral was done by accident? Is a goral a sign from Shemayim? He has a long, long essay over and over. Can you do a goral on Shabbos and Yontif? Is a mutter to do a goral on Shabbos and Yontif? He goes on and on. Unbelievable. The goral hagra. Maybe familiar with the stories of the goral hagra. What's the difference between a poor and a goral? The story of Purim. Otra plus Torah goes on and on. But we have some more ideas to get to. Oh, yeah, 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 Okay, our parsha also contains the succession plan. We have Tzlavchad, the story of Ben Tzlavchad, where the daughters of Tzlavchad come and say, not fair to us, my father, our father didn't have a son, we don't inherit, how does this work? Another one of the areas of halacha that Moshe forgot, he had to go back and review and consult with Hashem, and the halacha was taught. Vayem Hashem Moshe came Ben Tzlavchad, and so on. Pasuk Zayin. I'm sorry. The successor. By Daber Moshe, Tessain, 888. May Hashem, God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly. Hashem, it's time to appoint my successor. Because if I'm not making it into the land, these people can't can't go forward without a leader. I think it was in Parsha class. A few weeks ago, we spoke about level five leadership. Jim Collins, good to great. So level five leadership is, it's more about the cause than it is about you. So Moshe Rabbeinu is concerned. A level five leader plans their succession. They plan who's going to take over. So that's what Moshe comes to Hashem and says, there needs to be a worthy successor. And what's the quality he's looking for? Elokei haruchos. He calls Hashem, Hashem who's the, who knows the spirit of all flesh. Hashem who's Elokei Aruchos. Why does he have to introduce his request from Hashem? Hashem, you know everyone. You know them better than anyone knows themselves. You know the inner kishkas of every person. Well, it's time for a successor. What does one thing have to do with the other? It's true Hashem knows everybody, and it's true it's time for succession planning. What do the two have to do together? So Rashi says, you know what it has to do with? The successor has to be somebody who is willing to accept and recognize and have the incredible patience to know that everybody's different. 
Hashem, you created, you fashioned everyone, and you know that you know that everyone has a different personality and attributes and assets and liabilities, and you need a manig, the critical criteria for a worthy leader is sovel kol echad ve'echad lefi daito. The word sovel is the root of the word. What does this mean? Savlanut. Savlanut. Savlanut is patience. The root of the word patience is sovel. Sovel is sufferance. A patient person is willing to suffer in order to be patient. When God says, Moshe says, Hashem's going to take us out, mitachas sivlos mitzrayim, the burden of Egypt, because patience is a burden. Patience is sufferance. You have to be willing to suffer. So why does he introduce Elokei Aruchos? So Rosh Hashiva of Hebron, Rav Avram, it's an amazing insight. You know what makes a good manig? What makes a worthy leader is someone who is not trying to make everyone conform. A worthy leader is not trying to make everyone fit into a box. A worthy leader is not trying to make everyone a carbon copy of themselves. A worthy leader is able to validate and recognize and honor the differences in people. That just like Hashem is a lokeha ruchos, Hashem, you surely know the differences between people you created them. So we need a leader who will be able to be sovel, who will celebrate and honor and promote and encourage and support the individuality and the uniqueness of each and every person recognizes ein domen that people are not entirely similar. Everyone is not exactly the same. So what does he say? Alei alahar. Hashem is moved by this. Pasuk. He says, climb the mountain. I'm sorry, we went out of order a little bit. If you psukim earlier, why did Moshe say I need a successor? Because Hashem said, climb on the mountain. Alei alahar Climb the mountain, look at the land. You're not going in. It's for another time we've asked the question. Is Hashem cruel? He's torturing Moshe. You're not going in. Nah, nah. Climb the mountain. Give a kick. Give a look. Beautiful? You really want to go? Well, you're not going. Why would Hashem do that? It's just torturing Moshe. But Moshe responds. Moshe reacts by saying, it's time for a successor. And here, Rav Soloveitchik writes the following. Immediately after the narrative regarding the daughters of Slavchad, Hashem commands Moshe, go up to the mountain and look at the land. And what you have seen, you too will be gathered to your people just as your brother Aram. When Hashem refused Moshe's request that he be allowed to pass over the Yardin River to Israel, Moshe argued at the very least he should be buried there. Since he carried Yosef's casket in the desert for 40 long years to be buried in Israel, why should Hashem not give him the same privilege? Asks the Rav, Moshe schlepped the bones of Yosef for 40 years. That is the longest act of a pallbearer in history. 40-year pallbearing. 40 years. And all he asked was, fine, I can't go in alive. Can I at least be buried there? And Hashem says, no. Why not? Why not? Hashem's answer was, Yosef acknowledged his land and you did not acknowledge the land. See, in captivity, Yosef's identity was tied to the lands of Israel. He says, Bereshit's Perak Mem, 
I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. But when Yisra's daughters mistakenly identified Moshe as an Egyptian to their father, Moshe didn't correct them. He didn't say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm really, I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish, I'm a Hebrew. And as a result of this omission, he didn't merit to get buried in the land. What do you see from here? Chevra. Our identity has to be intertwined and connected to the land of Israel. Even if we have a legitimate reason, there are legitimate reasons not to yet make Aliyah, there are no legitimate reasons not to be struggling with Aliyah. Aliyah is not a question of if, but a question of when. There are legitimate reasons not to be living in Israel. There are no legitimate reasons not to be struggling with when we will live in Israel. And that identity, that connection, that pull to Israel has to be part of our core identity. There's no such thing as a Jew who lives in the diaspora in Gullus who says, yeah, I'm good. My siblings live there. My family lives there. I'm happy for them there. But I'm happy here and this is where I am. This is where I'll be and I'm good. A Jew has to know I'm here temporarily. And if I have an excuse or a reason, then I have an excuse or a reason. But my core identity is intertwined, is tied to that land that's part of who I am. This week I'm behind the bimo of Natan Sharansky, the great Russian refusenik who's a minister, a leader of Israel. And his story, if you don't know it, and we'll talk about it tomorrow night, he was secular. He didn't have any, like the other Russians, Soviets, was denied being able to learn about his Jewish identity. But he felt connected. His first connection was after the Six-Day War was to the Jewish people, was to the land of Israel, and how that led to his exploring his Jewish faith and the courage it took for who he was and who he is and the difference he's making. So ultimately, Yisro, uh, Moshe rather, didn't correct Yisro's daughters when they said Ish Mitzri, he's Egyptian. He didn't say, whoa, 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 just temporarily. As opposed to Yosef, who all the time he was in Egypt said, but I really come from, from the land, I really come from there. You see how important it is, our connection, particularly as we're going to be starting these three weeks. These three weeks are a time to review and renew our connection to the land. Yifkod Hashem. Yifkod Hashem. Okay, we'll end with this. Perach of Zion, Pasuk Tezayin. So... Yifkod Hashem, Hashem, Elokei Aruchos, go and appoint a successor. Back to where we left off. I'm sorry we went backwards there for a moment. Yifkod Hashem, Elokei Aruchos, go find somebody over them. Shlomo Zaman Arbach says, What is it that Moshe looks for in qualifications? Find a rabbi who knows Shas and Poskim Ba'peh? Find a rabbi with the longest Shemona Esrei? Find a rabbi with the best pedigree? That's Yichos? What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? The Rabbinic Search Committee. What are they looking for? That's what you're looking for. What are you looking for? Who will go out before them and come in before them, who will take them out and bring them in. That's what you're looking for. Says of Shlomo Zaman, you need somebody who is going to dedicate themselves, who's going to demonstrate that dedication. Because the, the hashpa that this leader is going to give is not with his words, but rather with his actions. He will speak much more with his actions than with his words. So you don't have to take a test on shas. It's not a question of your yichus. It's not how long Yishmon Esrei. 
It's a person who goes out and comes in. Is there most nefesh for the people? Do you care about? Do they love the people? Are they patient with the people? And do they demonstrate real, being a real Eved Hashem in their own midos, in their own relationship, Ben Adam L'chavira, Ben Adam L'makom, and Ben Adam L'atzmo? Says of Shlomo Zalman, you see here the criteria of a leader is do they practice what they preach? Because ultimately that leader is going to teach much more with their actions than they are with their words. Listen to this Kotzker. Kotzker wants to know, Back in Parshas, when he hit the rock, Moshe Rabbeinu was told to Chukas that he wasn't entering the land. So why didn't he immediately say, I'm not going in? I guess it's time for a successor. Why does he wait until now, after the episode of Ben Oslavchan? Why is it only now? Why is it only now? So the Kutzker says, Mikoda Maisa Zimri Chashav Ki Betach Pinchas Kedosh Hashem Yimalei Mekomo Aval Ata Achri Shira Kin Asa L'Shem Hashem Afshay Adavar Gadol Maod Shilo Nero Chilav Kedush Aso Hashem is Baruch Amar Hinos Nilas Brisi Shalom Vigam Atzar Magefa Afa Pichein Amar Moshe Rabbeinu Ein Kenai Yacholios Manig Yisrael L'Zos Bikesh Yifkod Hashem because he didn't ask for a successor, he thought he had his man. Who was his man? No brainer. It was obvious. It was all Pinchas's. Pinchas was going to get the job. But now when he saw Pinchas act like a Kanoi, says the Kutzker, says the Kutzker, he saw Pinchas react as a Kanoi, even though what Pinchas did was correct, and it had the endorsement of Hashem, and he was rewarded. But still, a leader can't be a Kanoi. You need somebody on the side. Every rabbi needs their kanai in their pocket. But the kanai can't be the rabbi. So Moshe Rabbeinu, when he realizes when Pinchas acts out of kanas, he realizes, I'm glad I have a Pinchas, but he's not the successor. He's not going to be the next leader. It can't be Pinchas. Back to the drawing board. Time for a search committee. Who should it be? And of course, they conclude it's none other than Yoshua. Why they conclude Yoshua? Bear with me one more moment. And I'll end with a Kedushas Levi, Levi Yitzchak Abedichev. Bikesh HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yimne Parnas Al-Hatzibor Manikazeh Sheyid Al-Lumot Zchus Al-Bene Yisrael Tamid Elokei HaRuchos L'chol Basar Isha Al-Haida Go back to that Rashi. Moshe says, Hashem, you know that everybody's different. We need a leader who will be sovel, who will be, who will be uh, patient and will suffer the difficult people. And the Kedushas Levi of Levi Yitzchak says on this, something, a commentary, which is really autobiographical of who the Badichever was. This leader is going to find the people bathing in a disappointing way. This leader has to be able to be patient and understand they're human beings. They have faults, they have failures, they have shortcomings, they have misgivings. He has to love them, not nonetheless, but love them for who they are, pimples, warts, and all. And the leader has to be effective at being malamed tzchus. The leader has to be able to stand up and say, but look how beautiful, but look how wonderful. The leader has to be the most loyal defender of the people. He has to say, no, it's because they live in this world and they're tempted and driven by the temptations. Says, why does he give the angels to eat and drink? 
He knows they're angels who don't eat and drink. What he was saying to them is, welcome angels, but let me tell you a little bit about our world. We have a little something called Cape Cod potato chips. We have a little something called Trader Joe corn chips. We got a little something called Fourth of the July barbecues. With the bun, without the bun, whole wheat bun, non-whole wheat bun, one number hot dog. We got a little something called temptation in this world, Malachim. Welcome to our world and don't judge us from your perch. Judge us from down here in our world where it's a battle and it's a struggle because the leader has to be able to advance these arguments. Avram Avinu did, Moshe Rabbeinu did, and his successor would need to, and there was nobody maybe more in all of Jewish history than Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, the great defender of the Jewish people. So that's why Moshe says, God, you know their differences, and you know that you gave us a Yetzirah, and you know that you dropped us and deposited us in the world of temptation. You need a leader who's not going to expect and demand perfection from people. You need a leader who's not going to point with criticism. You need a leader who's not going to indict. You need a leader who's not going to knock them down. You need a leader who's going to lift them up, who's going to defend, who's going to fight for, who's going to support, who's going to be Muhammad Tzchus. And in this insight, Levi Yitzchak was really giving a message about himself. Wishing everyone a wonderful day. Tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meeting with Mrs. Hasharim, followed by living with Amuna tomorrow night behind the Bima with Natan Sharansky. Have a phenomenal day. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.